Hey, everybody. Caitlin here. We're doing something a bit different this week. In recent days, the news cycle has brought a story that touched both me and Roxy in a personal way. So we thought we'd bring that out today. We did want to let you know that we will be discussing sexual harassment and other forms of abuse. Thanks. I'm feeling a little bummed right now, Roxy. I'm assuming you're referring to the news about Christianity Today that has come out. Yeah. I mean, another Christian leader has been credibly accused of sexual harassment. And at an organization that we both worked for and helped lead. Which is why you're actually one of the first people I wanted to talk to about the news. Same. If only we had some kind of forum where we could tackle big topics like this. Yeah, some, some public-facing way so that others could listen in. We could tackle the topics of the day. Let's, let's keep noodling on this. I feel like it could lead to something. There's a, a nugget of an idea there. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women navigating our callings in a man's world. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. I'm a little bit nervous. Are you nervous? Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky subject in so many ways. And I think because it's so personal, it makes it difficult to talk about and um, difficult to feel like a sense of objectivity around. Yeah. And also people have strong opinions about how instances and allegations of harassment are reported and how they're dealt with in the public square. How they're dealt with in a quote unquote Christian organization. And I don't say quote unquote, like they're not Christian. I just mean like, is an organization Christian or is it, like run by HR policies and legal policies. And people have different ideas about that, especially when they can look at it and be like, oh, it's no, it's a ministry. It's not a business. Well, let's back up a little bit. And for listeners who are not (laughs) aware of what we are talking about or maybe have heard bits and pieces, but want the fuller story. Last week, Christianity Today magazine, where both Roxy and I worked at different periods of our careers, released a report detailing allegations of sexual harassment against two former employees, one being the editor-in-chief who retired a few years ago, as well as a top advertising executive. Both men were accused by multiple women of unwanted touch, of sexually inappropriate comments. And then in addition to that, the report found that the HR department at CT had not been keeping written documentation on the allegations against the men. (sighs) So you had a cycle where women would go to HR and say, you know, this man touched my lower back. (laughs) By the way, it was me. Um, I felt uncomfortable. (laughs) I don't know what what to do about this, thinking that HR would you know, add that to the person's report and then only finding out years later mm-hmm. that there was no written documentation, which meant there was actually no recourse or like a documented pattern of inappropriate conduct, even though there had been a pattern. Whew. So. <laughs> yeah. And it should be said here um, as well, I think that the 
reporting on this was really stellar. And Daniel Silliman and Kate Shelnut, who did the reporting completely independently from any leadership at Christianity Today, they did a really stellar job and they covered so many bases and they did it with such sensitivity. So as a fellow journalist, Mm -hmm. I just really want to applaud the work that they did. Yeah, I would totally echo that. It's obviously really hard to report on your own organization and to report about people you know in some capacity or you've worked with, but it's also really important, Mm -hmm. I think, as a matter of journalistic integrity. CT has reported on so many instances of harassment and abuse. So being willing to turn that critical eye on themselves and do so in a way that Mm -hmm. other leaders at CT couldn't tinker with, you know, that they were able to do it while maintaining journalistic independence is really important. So if any listeners haven't read the report, I would highly encourage you to go to CT's website and also read the current president's editorial and also an independent assessment of deeper cultural issues at the organization that kind of fostered an environment where someone could harass without facing accountability. So I obviously had a a lot of personal reactions to this story. Um, Some of them because I worked there and some of them because, dang, it just feels like every time you turn around, there's another Christian organization where this kind of harassment has been has happened, if not much worse. Um, but you worked there a lot longer than I did, and you worked directly under um, Mark Galley, one of the people who was credibly accused. Um, tell me what, you know, and, and you even already alluded, like you were obviously interviewed for this report, and one of the instances was something that you experienced. Mm-hmm. So given all of that... <laughs> When the report came out and you read it, what were your immediate reactions? I felt nervous opening up the link. Like, mm. what am I going? What's what am I going to read? Mm-hmm. I know some bits and pieces, mm-hmm. but is it going to be worse than I expected? I felt angry and incredulous at a lot of the details that were in the report, in the sense that I didn't realize how bad the behavior was and how long Mm -hmm. it had gone on and especially the lack of HR accountability felt Mm -hmm. like such incompetence. I felt sad that so many women didn't feel like they could address this either directly or with HR and that it just kept happening and it was kind of Mm -hmm. minimized as the result of one person's quirks or age or theology. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. then I, because of that, I felt somewhat implicated because I knew Mm -hmm. that I had accepted some of those rationalizations over the years. Right. You know, like I had put that kind of behavior pertaining to unwanted touch and offhanded comments that were inappropriate. I put those in the category of well, he's just quirky or he's just a little bumbling or he's of a different generation or he doesn't mean to be bad. (laughs) He has good intentions. And after reading the report, Mm -hmm. I was like, I don't 
even though I don't know that that's true anymore. And that's really disturbing. But also, did my giving him the benefit of the doubt create a culture where it was harder for other women to speak up? So I have felt a lot of things. And Uh I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, just really sad. You know, Mm -hmm. how did you how did you feel when you were reading through the report? Yeah, well, my head went a lot of similar places. Um, I think I only worked at CT in person for a year. Um, and then the when I came back and worked for CT again, it was only part-time and it was remotely. So I only have that really that one year of culture to react to, but I think that was the thing that stood out to me the most as I was reading it. I did not work with either of the men closely enough to have witnessed any of those things. But what I did witness was so familiar to me in the description of the culture that came out in the report. In particular, a sort of sense of an old boys club, like a lot of the men, a lot of the people in powerful positions, authority positions were Mm -hmm. mostly men. I think when I started, there was like the first female executive vice president had just been promoted. And so I think it was still very much kind of even before like Me Too really happened. Mm -hmm. And it was conservative too. And I don't mean conservative in the sense of Republican or or theological. I mean it in the sense of like just the atmosphere of it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it was quieter. There was a dress code. Like I'd come from a much more casual Mm -hmm. Colorado workplace. The rooms all were like big wooden furniture mm-hmm. and leather chairs. <laughs> and it just had the sense of like an like an old school environment. Mm-hmm. And when I read in the article, for example, gosh, I just I just sat back and rolled my eyes when I read this. Like there's this paragraph in the article of like the HR director played golf regularly with the two men mm-hmm. accused of the sexual harassment and I was like of course they did like there was just that kind of sense of like (laughs) they all were colleagues and friends and maybe they even went some of them even went to church together who you know there was just that sense coupled with this idea of like these are all upstanding evangelical Christian men and so I think just that idea of the culture did not surprise me at all and the feeling that it was of a different generation did not surprise me either. And this feeling that the women in general, a lot of the women were younger than the men in the office. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of young women being hired right out of Wheaton, right out Mm -hmm. of college. And, and yet the older generation was almost all men. Right. The gap in gender and age around positions of leadership. Like, yeah, of course there were a Mm -hmm. lot of young people in general, but over time, the people who had stayed and risen to positions of leadership tended to be older men who had been at the mm-hmm. organization for decades and had known each other A for long decades. Time, and yes. Yeah, the golf thing. I mean, first of all, I was like, could you pick something like a little less stereotypical? Like like get into Fortnite or something or <laughs> or bird watching. Come on. That would have been fine with me. I know. Like, like golfing, it just, because it symbolizes an informal male network mm-hmm. that then spills over into workplace dynamics that you can just so easily see turning into 
I'm going to go soft on you and turn a blind eye when Mm -hmm. I see Mm -hmm. something odd or hear something odd because I really like you and you're my friend. And of course, women have these networks as well, but it's not coupled with the the dynamics of power that we obviously see in this story. Yeah. And it's not like I think there's something wrong with colleagues being friends outside of work. It's that there aren't women in those spaces and and it almost Mm. would be even like frowned on. Yeah, I think what you're touching on is evangelical gender roles and kind of gender norms. (laughs) Yeah, they play a real role in this. And maybe even at least for one of the leaders, credibly accused, he had very specific views around men and women and men are like this and women are like this and kind of essentialist. Mm Mm-hmm. God made men to be this way and women this way. And one of the things that I heard him say and write was related to men's sexual urges, that they are out of control, that they, most men struggle with this, Mm -hmm. that it's just part of who we are. We're visual creatures. And even if you ascribe to that belief, the way that it was used to excuse behavior is very toxic. I mean, yeah. Like my dad, who, of course, I think is an upstanding man of character and who I've never heard say any, you know, say anything sexist or crude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the end of the day, he might say like, yes, men are more visually wired or their sex drives Mm -hmm. are generally higher than women's. But he would never use that to excuse. And therefore, I can touch you without your consent or I can make comments about liking to watch women playing golf in the workplace like what (laughs) um yeah and I think there's there's this idea of like oh it's just locker room talk that men have when they talk about these things and there's this sense that that like they just do it with the other guys but again that creates this informal like good old boys network that like normalizes objectifying Mm -hmm. women in a way that just bleeds into the workplace it just does it there's not a way to decompartmentalize that and I think that's part of what we saw here and part of the reason why it was sort of like oh I know him he doesn't really mean anything Mm -hmm. by it it's like well one of the most disturbing details in the story and again there's a lot there and I encourage anybody listening to go read it carefully but a woman was hired in the mid-2000s on staff and somebody joked the reason that she was hired was that another editor wanted to have sex with her. I cannot believe somebody said that. She did not report it to HR but another colleague did and from that point on several of the men on staff kind of made comments suggesting that she saw sexual harassment in everything. Okay, this is, this story made me so angry because it gets at why women so often feel afraid to report something because they don't want it to be taken. They don't want it to be blown up. They don't want to be seen as mm-hmm. that woman. And the feminist, the shrill, that's, you're oversensitive. She can't take a joke. She thinks that everything is sexual. She thinks that men are all trash. Like all of that in and of itself is ridiculous and made me angry. But then the fact that like, that's the reason that HR is supposed to be anonymous is so that there isn't that kind of backlash. And what was throughout this story, this wasn't the only instance you experienced this where what was reported to HR that should have been kept confidential and who reported it kept confidential 
ended up getting out about who reported it and and then there was like clearly retaliation. Like, yeah, so just really briefly, one of the men reported on in the story was my boss. When I was a young woman, first couple years working at the office, he passed by me in the hallway and touched my lower back. It wasn't overtly sexual. I mean, I can honestly say like, okay, right. that wasn't, it's not touching my butt. It's, you know, like I could kind of categorize it as maybe this was friendly, but also it made me uncomfortable. I couldn't figure out why my boss needed to touch me at the workplace ever. Right. I went to HR. Right. The HR director was understanding. He understood why I felt uncomfortable. He was taking notes. I thought mm-hmm. this will be a kind of formal report on what happened. Right. Sure. Didn't hear anything about it for a while until the person that I had spoken up about came to me directly. Your my boss. boss, who's by the way, 30 years older than me, has been at the company for years and years. I I don't know where he's coming from necessarily. And he says, if this happens again, you should just come talk to me directly. So the HR person told yes. him who made the accusation, not just what it was, but who told him. And I took that to be, well, I have different reads on what this person meant. But at the very least, what he was trying to do was to leave HR out of it as a form of accountability. Mm-hmm. He was trying to remove the third party form of accountability. Like, we can just hash this out on our own. I'm like, no, we can't. Do you not understand? Don't understand the power dynamic. Don't understand that you are fairly new to the organization. Like, he could easily fire you or get you fired. Like, all of those things are playing into it. Right, or retaliate in some way Mm -hmm. or be angry about it and find ways to make me understand that he's angry and whatever. Or just make jokes for the rest of your time. Like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to accidentally bump you. Are you going to report me to HR? Which was also part of the CT (laughs) report that he would make joking comments like that. And I know because I've read his recent apology as well as I just have heard this so many times. Like, it ends up with a biblical explanation. Like, no, the Bible says we're supposed to work these things out together, one-on-one. There's supposed to be a chance for reconciliation. There's supposed to be, like, you come directly to someone with a problem. That's the Christian way to do it. And gosh, that's just so, that just doesn't work when there's a power dynamic the way that there is in these instances. Yeah. And even if someone, let's say people had spoken to this person over the years, like, hey, you really need to, it obviously didn't have any effect. It it, it wasn't Mm. effective because it just kept on happening over and over again. So the Bible also says a lot about a fool being unwilling to take wisdom from other people (laughs) and do some serious self-examination. And if people are saying, hey, you made me uncomfortable taking ownership of that instead of pulling out some kind of faux biblical justification about we need to pursue reconciliation. I think maybe it's a little late for that. I don't know. I could see a lot of men in particular, but maybe people of a different generation, older generation too. Um, the Mad Men generation, for example, I, I like reading this report. I keep thinking about Mad Men. <laughs> and being like, what's the yes. big deal? I know. And it came out after this, but I was like, yeah, they would call me. They had martinis and oysters. <laughs> I, was, I have been thinking about Mad uh, Men and I'm like, oh yeah. I could see people being like, what's the big deal? You have here? no idea like, you how just, bad it was 
for exactly. my generation yeah. of women trying yeah. to get a foot in the door. Our bosses really <laughs> did make us sleep with them in order to get the job. They didn't just touch us on the back, you know? There was no HR, you know, or like mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no recourse. Mm-hmm. I was talking to my mom about this and she reflected on the kind of generational aspect. Like mm-hmm. this was just kind of the norm. These old boy networks kind of yeah. have run the world for a long time. Yeah. I think what's especially hard about this and other stories involving Christian leaders is that at the end of the day, I think we want to say, yeah, but shouldn't we be different? Shouldn't we hold ourselves to a different standard than just how things are done in the world? Do we believe that our faith has anything to say about treating people with dignity? And I don't want to live in Mad Men world. And I am glad that we don't anymore. And I'm glad that women feel like they can do something about this. You want to hear one of the times when I felt like gender was playing an outsized and very strange role in Christianity Today's culture? I I definitely want to hear the story. And also I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what in the world? (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I was a manager, and I had to take a trip um, to California. One of my direct reports was supposed to come with me on this trip. We were, you know, meeting with some writers and going to a conference and all that. And he came to me when after we found out about the trip and we were supposed to make travel arrangements, and he was like, I can't go with you alone Mm -hmm. Um, because this thing called the Billy Graham rule. um, I don't remember if he actually used that. I now know that's what it's called. I went to a secular college. Like I worked at a kind of a totally different environment in a lot of ways before that. I'd never heard of such a thing. And he was like, um, my wife and I made the decision that I would never like be alone with another woman on a trip or in a room Mm-hmm. in a car. Um, and I was like, uh, okay. Um, so it just, it put us in this position and put me in this position of having to figure out like, what are we going to do about this? I have to go. He needs mm-hmm. to go. It's imperative for both of our jobs. Um, did you get a chaperone? His wife came. Did CT pay for his wife? No, CT did not. Okay. Okay. Whew. No, but I mean, it's fine. People's spouses travel sure. on work trips all the time. It was just, and mm-hmm. probably could have been done without the whole conversation. Like, oh, my wife is just also <laughs> yes. going to come on this trip, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can imagine how that made you feel. But how did that make you feel? Just weird. I mean, it made me feel, it put all of this, it put sexual tension in the air that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what made it strange to me was that, like, I had never thought about this person that way. I had never imagined that he thought about me that way. And now mm-hmm. I was like, wait, am I a temptress? Am I a problem? Um, Have I done something wrong? Exactly. Have I crossed this boundary by asking him to go on this trip? You were just (laughs) thinking about professional requirements, but it was like, oh. like imagining like a, no, I don't, I can't think of the word. What's the word? It's the word? A tryst? Tryst? And what's the other one? Rendezvous. He was imagining like a hotel bar rendezvous or something. I mean, he wasn't, but but that's what was going through my head. You're like, sir, this is a Denny's. (laughs) This is the least sexual environment we could find to meet. Yeah. And then, and then later, like there were other times, like when his annual review came, I would usually take people out to lunch. We couldn't, Mm -hmm. We, we ordered sandwiches and did it in my office with the door open. Like, 
it created this sense that like truly like men and women cannot be in a room together without mm-hmm. wanting to take each other's clothes off. So one argument, one line of argument in this broader conversation about sexual harassment might be, well, look, this is why we have the Billy Graham Exactly, rule. exactly. We, we have these rules around how men and women can interact because we need these boundaries. And mm-hmm. if you leave men and women alone, like men could harass women. You know, this allows men to act badly. So this is actually good for women mm-hmm. that we have this rule. What do you think of that? I have so many thoughts about that. Beginning with, there are a lot of gay men in this world too. And so it's not like this is just, should just be for men and women. Like a man in power could have Mm. another younger man in his office and it could be just as much of a problem, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of assumptions there, of course, because it's evangelical culture anyway. But also I think, again, I think it introduces a sexual tension It puts it at the front of people's minds in a way that it doesn't need to be. Mm -hmm. But I think beyond that, it continues to solidify this idea that women are sort of of, of objectifying women, Mm -hmm. um, that they're sexual creatures. And it creates a boundary so that men and women are not in rooms together, which that means they're not on the golf course together. That means they're not at the after dinner parties together. That means that women are often left out of decision making Mm -hmm. places. Yes, the rule intersects with lack of women in positions of leadership Mm -hmm. in many Christian organizations. And so the rule on the surface could be giving the appearance of sexual integrity, but in fact, in in terms of how it operates, it means that women are not let into these key conversations mm-hmm. with other leaders. Absolutely. And some of these relationships are formed in extracurricular activities. They just are, like the golf course or, mm-hmm. you know, going out for dinner or traveling to a conference and, you know, riding together in a car, like these kinds of mm-hmm. things that these conversations happen. It just reinforces an artificial boundary between men and women that says we're different and we have to watch out. We have to be careful around each other. Well, one of the men named, going back to the CT report, one of the men credibly accused in the report apparently touched women in front of other people all the time. (laughs) He was not, this was not even something happening behind closed doors. Like, oh, if we had just kept him from being alone with women, this wouldn't have happened. Also true. So I want to go back to, I want to speak to situations where women do find themselves in some position of leadership. I mean, both you and I, had Mm -hmm. positions of leadership at CT and you've had lots of leadership positions at other Christian organizations. When you find yourself in a male centric kind of old boys culture and you also want a career (laughs) and you also want to affect change, like how do you navigate that? What do women do who find themselves maybe they believe in the mission, they like Mm -hmm. their day-to-day work, Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are these dynamics, but sometimes you can just try to put them on the shelf. Like, how do you navigate that well? I think I've learned a lot since then. You know, I did start out my career almost always in really male-centric organizations, always Christian. And I think even then I had I had my own ambitions. And often in those evangelical circles, 
women start dropping out because they there's sort of this idea of like women get married and they have kids and then they stop working and they go home and they stay with the kids and then maybe they come back and work after the kids hit a certain age. And I wasn't in that position um, and I Mm -hmm. really wanted a successful career. And so I will admit some judgment there of women who did that, um, which Mm -hmm. I think there's lots of internalized misogyny that we all Mm. have to deal with as well. Mm -hmm. But I think I had these ambitions that I wanted to be in the room with the men. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I didn't ask myself is... First of all, why was I so proud to be a woman in a room with men? And why did I want to be one of the guys? Mm. Why didn't I ask myself, why aren't there any other women in this room? And I think those are questions that I'm wrestling with now or continue to wrestle with is I think a lot of women have that sense of being proud to be in the room and like, wow, we're not like the other women that are smart enough or that decided to stay home with their kids or they didn't have like the ambition spark or whatever like the men see something in me you know and I think there's Mm. that like male adjacency that we can strive for and Mm -hmm. feel really proud of and that's something Mm -hmm. I'm interrogating in myself and I don't want to be in a room and look around and be the only woman in the room anymore because I think that means that it's a dangerous culture. Boom. I definitely resonate with the sense of wanting to be the only or one of the few women among the guys. Like, yeah, I worked hard. I dealt with some crap, but I put in the time. I think I have some skills to contribute <laughs> and a sense of validation for making it among the guys. Yeah, you know? like how good did it feel to be the first female managing editor at Christianity Today and the youngest one, you know? It felt good at the time. <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt good. It, yeah. it felt it, it was a source of pride or identity or self self importance or something. I mean, I you know I do not fault any women who have children and feel like I have to drop out of the workplace for a while yeah. because by the way we don't have workplace policies that make it no. that are family friendly and that make it easy for families to take the time off when children are young. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't lost on me that I'm also single and that probably mm-hmm. in some ways helped, you know, mm-hmm. like there were, I didn't have quote unquote hindrances. I do think that looking back, I rationalized bad behavior by putting mm-hmm. it in the category of quirkiness or mm-hmm. generation differences. Or just harmless. I just was like a lot of it was like oh it's not a big deal yeah like this is weird but it's not it's weird but it's like not Mm -hmm. gonna be detrimental but I think that was just another reason why the CT report was so hard to read is like no it was detrimental it did it communicated a degradation toward women in the workplace and that other that, that women's boundaries were not to be respected and I think many of the organizations that I've worked at Um, that were evangelical institutions, I did feel like I just had to go with it. You know, it was to just take the jokes, to just laugh along. You know, I remember this one guy, older guy, who was, I didn't work with, but was like a client that I was working with that Mm. every time he would see me, he would make, 
these jokes about how I looked. And like one time he was like, oh, he'd be like, I can't believe you're still single. And then another time it was like, oh, every time I see you, I wish I had another son who wasn't married. <laughs> and I was just like, what? You know, and you just, I just kind of laughed because what was I? We, this was like a client. I mean, and I think you just mm. go with it, you know? Mm-hmm. It was annoying. And then I'd complain about it to my girlfriends. And then I'd just move on. And I think that that mm-hmm. was... I think that's how a lot of women feel all the time. And I think those microaggressions just are constant. So where do we go from here? I mean, you and I are not really currently in evangelical institutions anymore. But for women who are or for men who see the problems and want to be part of a generation of men that treats women differently and better and works for gender parity in the workplace. Is it, do you reform from within and stick it out? Or do we need something more radical given just how much this is happening and how much we're hearing this story played out over and over? I think it's both. I mean, I don't blame any women who leave. You know, I think the onus here for really changing this is mostly on men. I mean, I think for the men who read this stuff and are disturbed and are saying, I don't want to contribute to this kind of culture, um, you are often the one in the room with the other men that can stop mm-hmm. the conversations, can can say, I don't like that. And it will feel uncomfortable. It will feel uncomfortable to be like, guys, let's not say that. Let's not talk about the women that way. Let's not, you know, or say, hey, let's invite some women along to this after dinner, happy hour, whatever, like, mm-hmm. or to speak up when there's a hiring decision or to speak up when there's a meeting where the women aren't invited. I mean, it's, I don't feel like it should still be that way. Like, I feel like we should be past the point where we're saying like, men, you got to step up. But it feels like there's still, especially in some of these organizations, like that's still who's in power and it will, they have to recognize that they can do something about it. Yeah. I mean, in a male dominant culture, of course, people are going to defer to men speaking up more than they are to women and also mm-hmm. to people of color because women and people of color can be dismissed mm-hmm. as bringing their quote unquote political agendas mm-hmm. into the workplace. Their baggage. You know, mm-hmm. Their sensitivity, their PC bent. That is my hope for CT and for other organizations mm-hmm. that men who essentially run the show will commit to real change because if mm-hmm. not now, when? And this is not to say that women don't have power and it's not to say that women can't make a difference, but it's worth saying it to the guys too. You know, one of my friends uh, yesterday in response to um, this article coming out posted this quote from Anthony Bourdain, um, who was, of course, very involved in the restaurant industry. Um, And upon finding out just, just how much sexism and sex abuse that happened in the restaurant industry, this was Anthony Bourdain's response. I've been hearing a lot of really bad shit, frankly. And in many cases, it's like, wow, I've known some of these women and I've known women who've had stories like this for years and they've said nothing to me. What is wrong with me? What have I, how have I presented myself in such a way as to not give confidence? Or why was I not the sort of person people would see as a natural ally here? So I started looking at that. Mm. And I just think that's such a powerful response that's, Mm -hmm. 
really where I want to challenge people to be men and women, but especially men, but even women who are in power, like looking at like, if these things happened in a space that I worked in and I wasn't aware, why wasn't I aware? And how do I become the kind of person that people would talk to about it or that I would be sensitive enough to notice it? Or that I would be perceived as being a safe person to Mm -hmm. talk to who would take concerns seriously, who would believe stories when they come forward, who would advocate for other people who are being abused. Do other people experience me in that way? I think that Mm -hmm. is really the question for all of us. What did we leave out here, Caitlin? I feel like we, uh, I I I know we left some things on the table. We didn't get to all of the thoughts on this topic, but Rest assured, listeners, this is the beginning of a conversation at the end of it. We look forward to continuing to talk about dynamics of power, abuse, and gender parity in the church in this season and beyond. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty.